everyone and welcome to the Workers' Reading Room. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm reading American Trade Unionism, Principles, Organization, Strategy, Tactics by William Z. Foster. This is Part 1, Chapter 1, Early Days. I was born in Taunton, Massachusetts, near Boston, February 25, 1881. From the age of 7 to 10, I went to school selling newspapers the while. But at 10, so meager was the family income, I had to quit school and go to work. My first job in 1891 was with a sculptor. This was the first of my 26 years experience as a worker, an experience which took me into many industries including chemical, lumber, metal, meatpacking, agriculture, marine transport, railroad, building construction, etc., all over the country from New York to California and from Florida to Washington. I stayed two years with the sculptor, but the wages he paid were so low, from $1.50 per week for the first year to $2 for the second, that I quit him. I got a job at $3 a week at the local type foundry of McKellar, Smith & Jordan, where I worked some two and a half years and learned much of the type founder's trade. I began to follow with great interest and sympathy the many strikes and other struggles of the workers in this period. The first strike in which I actually participated was that of the Philadelphia Street Carmen in 1894, when I was 14 years old. The strike lasted only about a week, but it was very bitterly fought. I, together with other strikers and sympathizing workers, was clubbed and ridden down by mounted police at 15th and Market Streets in a vicious charge of these thugs against a peaceful parade of strikers. It was my baptism in the class struggle, and it exerted a profound influence upon my general outlook. The decade when I was a growing lad from the middle 80s to the middle 90s was one of active struggle by the workers. In point of militancy it was unequaled for the next 25 years. This was the heyday of the Knights of Labor and the foundation period of the American Federation of Labor. Some of the greatest strikes in the history of the United States took place during this time. This decade of extreme working class militancy was started off by the great 8 hour strike movement of 1886 centering in Chicago which greatly stimulated the trade unions everywhere, and which resulted in the legal lynching of its militant leaders Parsons, Spies, Fisher, Engel, and Ling. Soon this historic struggle was followed by another almost equally famous, the Homestead Strike of 1892, when the steel workers, fighting a losing battle against the growing steel trust, drove away the Pinkerton thugs in armed struggle and seized the local steel mills, rifles in hand. Then, in May 1894, in the midst of the great industrial crisis of that time, the powerful strike of the American Railway Union took place, led by Eugene V. Debs, which was crushed by a combination of violence by the federal government and treachery by AFL and railroad craft union officials. Meanwhile, in the Rocky Mountain states, among the metal miners, the Western Federation of Miners, with William D. Haywood as its leading spirit, a whole series of the most spectacular and hard-fought strikes in American labor history were developing, many of them being armed conflicts of the workers against company thugs and state troops. And another famous movement of this period was Coxey's National March of the Unemployed upon Washington, a movement that profoundly stirred the working class, stricken as it was by the huge wage cuts and unemployment caused by the prevailing economic crisis. While the workers were thus resisting American capitalism so militantly, the small farmers of the Middle West were also in a high state of political discontent. There was also much discontent among the urban petty bourgeoisie, or small manufacturers, merchants, etc. They were feeling the crushing power of the growing trusts and monopolies, 
Already they had succeeded in having the Sherman Antitrust Law passed in 1890 in a vain attempt to stifle the growth of monopoly. Their cup of unrest was also filled to overflowing by the deep industrial crisis of this period. It was upon this general background of discontent of the workers, farmers, and city middle class that the Bryan Democratic Party campaign of 1896 developed. It originated in the populist party of the farmers and the farmers remained the backbone of the movement, although large numbers of workers and city middle class elements also participated in it. I was profoundly stirred by all these great events, especially was I interested and aroused by the bitter strikes of the period. It is true that I knew of 1886 only from the older workers, but it was then still a strong tradition among them and I eagerly absorbed it. The American Railway Union strike of 1894 I remember quite distinctly, and I read with close attention the newspaper reports of the fierce strikes of the Rocky Mountain metal miners, and also of the many struggles of the coal miners in the anthracite districts of Pennsylvania. My sense of solidarity with the workers was actively aroused. I followed with bated breath the march of Coxey's army, and on my way to work I used to linger around Coxey's Philadelphia recruiting office at 13th and Filbert Streets to read the displayed bulletins from all over the country as to the progress of the various detachments of the Army of Unemployed. When the movement came to its absurd anticlimax by Coxey's being arrested for walking on the Capitol lawn, it was for me a personal tragedy. But the greatest effect of all upon my awakening class feeling was produced by the great homestead strike of steel workers. I was only 11 years old at the time, but I remember how I shared my father's indignation at the sending of the Philadelphia National Guard regiments to Pittsburgh. Forces were at work which were rapidly developing my native proletarian instinct into genuine class consciousness. It was fast outgrowing the petty bourgeois limits of the Bryan movement and was on the way to a revolutionary outlook. My experience in industry was broadening. By the end of 1900, I had added to my previous job three years' work in the fertilizer industry, working in the plants in Reading, Pennsylvania and Jacksonville, Florida, where I had become a steam fitter, stationary engineer, and an expert fertilizer mixer. I had also worked in Florida peonage lumber camps, put in two months as a brakeman on the Pennsylvania and Reading Railroad, and spent six months as a trolley car motorman on the 3rd Avenue line in New York City. It was at the latter occupation that I joined my first union, the Street Carmen. Conditions were abominable on the New York cars, the men being completely unorganized and the company arbitrarily dictating wage and working conditions. I decided to try to change all this. The result was that I was discharged for trying to organize the Street Carmen. This whole process of disillusionment with capitalist economics, government, and religion was preparing me for my transformation into a socialist which came with dramatic suddenness in the summer of 1900. I began to read socialist literature in earnest and to become better acquainted with the movement. In the fall of 1900, I was working in a fertilizer plant in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, near Reading, when the elections came on. Eugene V. Debs and Job Harriman were the socialist candidates. Although only 19 years old and too young to vote myself, I walked six miles with another worker, my brother-in-law George McVeigh, to help him cast his vote for the socialist ticket. The same year I joined the Socialist Party, then just being formed out of the split-off from the Socialist Labour Party. From 1901 to 1904, my revolutionary development suffered a rude interruption. The two and a half years I had worked with lead in the type foundry as a child worker had undermined my health. The three years following in the fertilizer industry, where we usually toiled totally unprotected, in dense clouds of poisonous dusts, broke me down so that the doctors pronounced me a consumptive. 
I was in a fair way to go to an untimely grave, grinding out profits for employers, as vast armies of workers had done before me, so I quit my job, pulled up stakes, and headed for the west. I hoboed my way. Arrived in Oregon, I had worked for a few months on the local docks and in the neighboring logging camps and railroad construction jobs. Then, early in the winter of 1901, I shipped out of Portland on an old square-rigged sailing vessel. She was the Pegasus, a British four-masted bark, and bound around Cape Horn for Cape Town, South Africa, with a cargo of wheat. Thus opened my life as a deep-water sailor, my most interesting and unforgettable experience as a worker. During this time, I sailed one and a half times around the world. All told, the voyage, counting considerable stays on the South African, Australian, and South American coasts, lasted almost three years and covered some 50,000 miles. It gave me a real taste of hunger, hardship, low wages, and danger, and it exposed me to the rawest and most callous exploitation. It helped very much to steel me in my growing revolutionary convictions. My last ship, the County of Cardigan, paid off at North Shields, England, and I took a steamer for Philadelphia. There I joined the Atlantic Coast Seamen's Union, intending to work as a sailor on the coast, but again I listened to the siren song of the West. Once more I hoboed it to Oregon, arriving early in November 1904, just in time to vote for Debs for president. From 1904 to 1907, I worked in the Portland area and began to take an active part in the Socialist Party. I paid up my dues in the local branch and began to read the party literature. During these three years, I worked in many local industries characteristic of the Pacific Northwest. Farming, logging, sawmills, building, metal mining, railroad construction, railroad train service, etc. I became a pretty typical western floating worker. I had secured a job as fireman on the Oregon Railroad and Navigation Company on the Portland Umatilla Division. After six months of this grueling work, I made an application to join the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen and Engineers, having decided to work up to an engineer. But then came the sharp industrial crisis of 1907, which swept me out of work and wrecked my plans. During these several years, my revolutionary understanding and enthusiasm were rising. I was a very ardent supporter of the Socialist Party, which was then torn by a bitter and growing internal struggle in the Pacific Coast states. Domination of the SP by middle-class elements condemned the party to a policy of opportunism. The revolutionary worker members of the party deeply resented this petty bourgeois control and opportunist regime. I took an active interest in this factional struggle and at once found myself in the left wing of the party. All my experience in reading in the class struggle had tended to make a militant of me. I learned the elementary lesson that the class struggle is indeed a fight. I was profoundly convinced that the reformers' plan of gradually turning capitalism into socialism by a series of reforms was futile, so I joined definitely with the proletarian elements who wanted to make of the Socialist Party a revolutionary organization. The industrial crisis of 1907 uprooted me in Portland and, job-seeking, I made my way to Seattle. Here I worked mostly as a building laborer and in the local sawmills during 1907 and 1909. When I arrived in Seattle, the SP internal fight was already acute. The state organization was in the hands of typical opportunist groups. The majority of the party membership favored the left opposition. The fight, centering around the main question of proletarian versus petty bourgeois control of the party, developed, with many ramifications, into a struggle for power. The situation climaxed in the party state convention held in Everett early in 1909. 
The left wing refused to participate in the convention, withdrew its delegates, held its own convention, and elected a state secretary. There were thus two socialist parties in Washington. Whereupon, the opportunist-controlled National Executive Committee of the Socialist Party pronounced the left-wing convention illegal, recognized the right-wing state secretary, and gave the left-wingers the opposition of joining as individuals. Few ever went back to the Socialist Party. At first, we tried to keep going our vision of the Socialist Party, but this policy could not continue because there was a great disinclination to use the hated name of the Socialist Party. We had, therefore, to cast about for a new form of mobilizing our forces. With the 1909 split on our hands in Washington, we had to make a decision as to our next step organizationally. Most of us, like left-wingers generally in that period, were saturated with the semi-syndicalist theories of Daniel de Leon, but we finally decided not to join the Socialist Labour Party of which de Leon was the leader. Its crass sectarianism repelled us. We felt de Leon's dogmatic utopianism rather than analyzed it. We decided to form a new party, and we did. After much avail, the new party was launched in Seattle on February 25, 1910. It called itself the Wage Workers' Party. This organization was short-lived. The WWP was a sort of hybrid between the Socialist Labour Party and the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, formed in 1905. There was no place in the class struggle for such an organization as the WWP, so it died as soon as it was born. The period from its formation to its collapse was only a few months. It got out only one issue of its paper, The Wage Worker. One of the active spirits in this movement was Joe Manley, later an active communist trade union leader. The WWP was important in that it was one of the earliest crystallizations of the SP left wing, a forerunner of the big fight of 1912 and the eventual national SP split of 1919. It was a local skirmish in the worldwide fight of the revolutionary elements inside the SP against the reformist leadership. I was not greatly enthused over the formation of the Wage Workers Party, and even while it was being launched I was turning my attention to the industrial workers of the world. Specifically, I went from Seattle to Spokane in the fall of 1909 to report the free speech fight there for Titus's working man's paper, formerly the Seattle Socialist. Immediately upon my arrival in Spokane, I joined actively in the struggle. I heartily endorsed the splendid fighting spirit of the IWW, which contrasted sharply with the wishy-washy SP. I was arrested and served two months. While in jail, I joined the IWW. Upon my release, I was placed at the head of the committee which negotiated the settlement of the struggle. This settlement resulted in an almost complete victory for the IWW. It was chiefly discussed with the petty bourgeois leaders and policies of the SP that had made me join the IWW. It was an easy step for me to conclude from the paralyzing reformism of the SP that political action in general was fruitless and that the way to working class emancipation was through militant trade union action culminating in the general strike. This conclusion was a serious error, confounding political action as such with SP opportunism and thus casting aside the political weapons of the working class. It took me many years to correct this basic mistake. I was also drawn to the syndicalist point of view by the influence of the militant IWW and likewise as a result of the spectacular success of the General Confederation of Labour CGT, of France. This syndicalist organization was at that time conducting a whole series of local and national general strikes that were stirring the workers in every country. I decided to go to France and study French syndicalism at first hand. So, early in 1910, with $100 in my pocket, I hoboed my way to New York and soon landed in Paris. 
I stayed six months in France and intensely studied the labor movement, gaining a speaking and reading knowledge of French. I was deeply impressed by the basic feature of French syndicalism, new to me and quite contrary to IWW policy. This was the policy of militant workers fighting for their policies within conservative unions, rather than withdrawing from them and trying to construct new ideal industrial unions on the outside. It seemed to me that this tactic and the whole theory of the militant minority were highly intelligent and far superior to the IWW policy of building dual industrial unions, and also to its naive theory that there were no leaders in the organization, all the members being leaders. I resolved to raise these two questions in the IWW when I returned to the United States, and the sequel showed that they were to play a very large part in my future labor activities. From France, I went to Germany, where I also stayed six months, incidentally learning the German language. My experience in Germany fortified my syndicalist opinions. The manifestly non-revolutionary Social Democratic Party and the conservative mass unions and cooperatives under its control convinced me further of the necessity of a revolutionary syndicalist policy. Furthermore, the sectarian isolation of the German syndicalist union convinced me that by withdrawing from the old unions on the IWW plan, they were simply turning the mass trade unions over to the deadly control of Karl Legion, and that good tactics required working within the mass unions. I was led to conclude that the policy of dual unionism was wrong not only in Germany, but also in the United States. My scheduled six-month stay in Germany coming to an end, I was hastily picking up a reading knowledge of Italian and Spanish preparatory to spending six months each in Italy and Spain, when Vincent St. John, General Secretary of the IWW, cabled me to represent that organization at the meeting of the International Trade Union Secretariat, forerunner of the Amsterdam International, to be held in Budapest, Hungary, August 10th to 12th, 1911. On my way, I attended the National Congress of the German Trade Unions in Dresden and saw Ligien's ironclad bureaucracy in action. As I was broke, I had had to walk 150 miles of the way from Nuremberg to Dresden. At Budapest, I received another cable from St. John to come home immediately to attend the forthcoming IWW convention, which I did. I arrived in Chicago in time for the sixth convention of the IWW, which was held in September 1911, and I at once took up the question of winning the IWW for a policy of working within the conservative trade unions. I began an active campaign in favor of this fundamental change of policy and won the support of Jack Johnstone, Joe Manley, Jay Fox, Sam Hammersmark, and a few other militants. The existing situation in the IWW was favorable to our agitation. The glowing hopes of the 1905 convention had not materialized. The organization had gradually dwindled in numbers and influence. The convention had only 31 delegates. Ideologically, the IWW had narrowed down pretty much to a small group of hard-boiled anti-political, anti-religious secretarians. Debs had quitted, and De Leon likewise, both having split off when the IWW rejected political action. Pessimism was rampant in the organization and the question, why don't the IWW grow, was a live issue. Meanwhile, however, an important event was developing that soon effectively crippled our budding agitation in the IWW. This was the famous IWW Lawrence strike in January 1912 of 23,000 textile workers. It was hard fought, well led, and resulted in a real victory for the workers. IWW stocks went skyward again everywhere and it grew rapidly. Within a short period afterward, the organization conducted a whole series of important strikes in Patterson, Akron, Little Falls, Leighton and the Masaba Iron Range, the Washington Lumber Districts, etc. This sudden wave of strikes, many of which won concessions, 
brought the IWW to what Professor Paul Bressenden called its crest of power. Pessimism vanished and the IWW militants were jubilant. St. John declared enthusiastically, The victory in the Lawrence Mills means the start that will only end with the downfall of the capitalist system. In such a situation, our proposal to have the IWW forces merge with the old trade unions fell flat. A new wave of dual unionist sentiment spread in all sections of the left wing. Only a few of us looked upon the current spurt of the IWW correctly as but a flash in the pan. The revival of the IWW dual union sentiment caused a change in our tactics. Our newly formed groups began to split off from the IWW and to join the AF of L to work there. The first to take this course was Local Syndicalist League No. 1 in Nelson, British Columbia, which had been formed by Jack Johnstone. It was only a short while afterward until we had similar groups within the AF of L in Kansas City, Omaha, Chicago, Minneapolis, Vancouver, BC, St. Louis, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Tacoma, Denver, and several other cities in the Middle West and West. As for myself, I paid my last dues to the IWW in February 1912. I was working as a railroader and I joined the AFL Union of My Craft, the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen of America, in Chicago. The few forces with which the new movement began its work came, as we have seen, almost entirely from the IWW. We had practically no contact with the left wing of the Socialist Party, which was thoroughly saturated with IWW dual union sentiment. Our new movement was too weak to call a national conference or convention. In agreement with the outlying groups, the Chicago Local League acted as the national center. It selected an executive board and elected me as national secretary. The organization was named the Syndicalist League of North America, this title being chosen because the league included groups in Canada and hoped to extend its activities also into Mexico. The Syndicalist League of North America lasted two years from 1912 to 1914. This was a period of growing struggle by the workers under the impact of the prevalent industrial crisis. The AFL unions grew rapidly and conducted several important strikes. The IWW grew and led many struggles. The SP increased its membership from 41,479 in 1909 to 118,045, and in 1912, its vote was 900,000, the largest in its history. And all this in spite of Theodore Roosevelt's efforts to demoralize the toiling masses with his bull moose campaign. Despite its considerable activities, the SL of NA did not succeed in becoming a mass organization. Also, it never penetrated the industrial east, being almost entirely located in the territory west of Chicago, the traditional IWW stronghold. It was composed chiefly of skilled workers, mostly native-born. No accurate statistics were kept, but its actual membership of militants was estimated at not to exceed 2,000, although the unions led by these militants easily counted 10 to 20 times that many workers. The League's influence, especially in view of its considerable press, was far greater than its small membership would indicate. After two years of life, the SL of NA fell into decline. In the summer of 1914, the National Center was liquidated and the movement crumbled away into disconnected groups of militants working here and there in the trade union movement. The SL of NA program exhibited a basic flaw of the syndicalist movement in general. That is, it constituted a great oversimplification of the workers' revolutionary problem in both theory and practice. Despite its short life, the SL of NA left its mark upon the left wing, however, and it must occupy an important position in American revolutionary history. 
It stands as the first organized effort of revolutionary workers to wrest the leadership of the trade unions away from their reactionary leaders. In this, it represented a great step forward over the crude dual unionism to which the left wing was then wedded. The only earlier serious effort by revolutionaries to win leadership in the trade unions was that of spies in Chicago 1886 and by the revolutionary pioneers in the early days of the SLP. But this was in the period before the left wing became afflicted with its long sickness of dual industrial unionism. The League led the first serious assault upon this paralyzing policy. The failure of the SL of NA to establish itself permanently in the labor movement was a facer to our small group of syndicalists. It did not, however, shake our conviction that the prevalent left-wing policy of dual unionism was wrong and very harmful. So, hardly had the SL of NA collapsed and we began to move to establish a new national organization. This effort crystallized in a conference held in St. Louis, January 17, 1915, consisting of a dozen delegates from Chicago, St. Louis, Omaha, and Kansas City. At this conference, we set up the International Trade Union Educational League. Chicago was chosen as national headquarters, a small national board with representatives from our four main points was selected, and I was picked as secretary. The ITUEL was born a few months after the beginning of the World War, in the midst of the 1914-15 industrial crisis, and just on the eve of the Great War boom. It was a time of rapidly rising cost of living and of spreading discontent among the workers. The workers were in a militant mood, but their organizations were giving them no fighting lead and there were few struggles. The AFL unions were stagnant in the industrial crisis, the IWW had declined after its upshoot of two years before, and the SP was still suffering heavily from the big split of 1912. Objectively, the situation was favorable for ITUEL work, which translated itself chiefly into efforts to organize the unorganized. But the ITUEL never succeeded in developing into a national movement. I made a 7,000-mile agitation tour through the West in wintertime, hoboing it as usual, trying to build the movement. Here and there, local militants endeavored to set up groups, but without avail. The ITUEL secured less spread nationally than even the SL of NA. It finally simmered itself down pretty much into a local league in Chicago, a group, however, which was fated to play an important role in the general labor movement. The reasons for the failure of the ITUEL to grow were pretty much the same as in the case of the SL of NA. There were the usual syndicalist weaknesses. Then there was the traditional left-wing opposition to participation in the conservative trade unions. Although the IWW was in a slump, dual unionism remained the unchallengeable and undiscussable gospel of the IWW, the SLP, and the left-wing of the SP. The dual union theory was at the time drawing sustenance from resentment against the deepening corruption in the AFL and its impotence in trustified industry, as well as from the rapid growth of the amalgamated clothing workers, an independent union split off from the United Garment Workers. Another factor that drove a wedge between the ITUEL and the body of the left-wing forces was the right opportunist conception of syndicalism that we had developed. This clashed violently with the leftist sectarian conceptions prevalent generally in the left-wing intended to further isolate our forces from the general revolutionary movement. The Chicago group of the ITUEL numbering about 100 was noteworthy because it was instrumental in setting on foot many militant movements and it was a prime factor in eventually making the Chicago Federation of Labor the most progressive labor council in the United States at that time. 
The Chicago FFL displayed its progressivism through its initiative in starting the great stockyards and steel industry organizing campaigns of 1917-19, its activity in the Labour Party movement, its support of the Mooney-Billings case, etc. Through 1915 and 1916, we continued building up a strong ITUEL delegation in the Chicago Federation of Labor. Our policy included a united front on many questions with the leading group in the CFFL headed by President John Fitzpatrick. Although we considered John Fitzpatrick devoid of theoretical knowledge of the class struggle, we believed him to be an honest and courageous man who made the best right he knew how for the workers. The ITUEL Chicago group took an energetic part in all the local strikes of the period. We came into sharp collision with the growing gangster control of the unions, making bitter enemies of the Murphy and O'Donnell gangs and other forerunners of the lurid Al Capone era. The ITUEL also branched out nationally with its agitation. We sent many articles to the trade union journals embodying our viewpoint, and we circularized thousands of local unions pushing a distribution of our pamphlet, Trade Unionism, The Road to Freedom. A very important action of the Chicago ITUEL was to secure the adoption by the CFFL of a proposal to form a Chicago Railroad Council, to be made up of locals of all railroad unions. The heads of the railroad craft unions fought this as a dangerous rank-and-file movement. In 1920, this council led a national strike of 250,000 railroad shop workers. 1936 that is the end of the first chapter. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thanks everyone for listening to the Workers Reading Room. Have a good day.